Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending March 10th. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you'll join us for an unconventional game of Poetry Scrabble. Tyson A talks about her exhibition Hierarchy of Needs at Bayside Gallery, and Vanessa Taholka previews her exciting trip to the tech innovations of South by Southwest. Simon and I look into what we want out of the toy library boom. For International Women's Day, Clem chats to the face of Queer Australia, Zoe Coombs-Ma. Simonia Baldy reviews to Leslie, and Clem lays down the law on hot cross buns. Triple R. Monday morning, which of course presents us with the perfect opportunity as always to test our water cooler gear, um, <laughs> you know, try the material around the, the office water cooler, see who had the better weekend, compare <laughs> notes. Um, now, I suspect, as usual, that I'm going to lose. I very much doubt that. You're always out and about. Uh-huh. <laughs> but but what, what sort of eccentricities did you indulge in this weekend? <laughs> I love them testing my water cooler material, such a low stakes environment. <laughs> Well, I was very fortunate to be um, able to join in the celebrations of Dan Dare, who was celebrating a birthday this weekend, and so joined a few sort of triple R friends and family. Um, So that was wonderful. Huge happy birthday, of course, to Dan Dare, um, and wishing him all the best. Absolutely. Did I see a, a baby carrier? Oh, indeed. Indeed you did. Mm. That's right. Lots of of family. And huge shout-out, of course, to Ari um, of (laughs) Flick and Levi, who was participating in his very first birthday celebration and maybe even party of the time. (laughs) That's so good. Very memorable. How about yourself? Oh, look, you know, nothing remotely uh, would compare to to that. But I do do (laughs) enjoy seeing pictures of baby carriers. I mean, uh, the first one I ever saw... Uh, when someone had a baby and they were running past me up the thousand steps. Oh, indeed, yeah. In Ferntree Gully, yeah. I suppose, and it would, it, and then they kept running up and down, and I realised it was less about uh, childcare than it was about <laughs> carrying weights because <laughs> they were running with weights in their hands as well. And I see, um, so that's a full body workout. Yeah, it was a full body workout <laughs> with the infant, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, you know, there was a bit of playing I got up to. But excellent. Did we, you go to the beach? I know that you were sort of there was. There there was a beach excursion, 100%. Excellent. Uh, and I'm really – I feel like I'm becoming increasingly familiar with South Melbourne Beach. I remember I used to ride along there with uh, – in rollerblades. Did you? Yeah. Sort of Venice Beach style. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. Um, they, how, what's the state of rollerblades? I feel like they're perennially cool. Perennial. Okay, yeah. good. And and have roller skates entirely been usurped? Or No. Indeed, Melbourne has a very healthy and active roller skating community. Okay, good. I'm so <laughs> pleased to hear. Uh, but, yeah, there was, there was, you know, sandcastles, lots of, you know, uh, boring... Uh, I mean, sandcastles fascinate me. How architecturally detailed do you go with yours? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't have the capacity to... Like, I, I don't have an engineering background. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you would manage to make an impressive sandcastle. I suppose it has to be volume of sand, maybe real estate. You have to have multiple towers, a little bit of a moat situation going on. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the thing is that I'm building these sandcastles with, um, you know, uh, my co-builder that is more interested in tearing down what's been made. I see. <laughs> and so I lose the interest to make it grand because yeah. there's just going to be, you know, a Godzilla episode. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, 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 I would like to get better at sandcastles. I know Frankston Beach used to have it. You would pay maybe the entry fee was, I don't know, maybe $40 or something. and, yeah. and Or I don't know what the entry fee, but it was it, there was a barrier to entry. <laughs> but when you got in, you saw world-class... Sandcastles. So it was worth the price of admission. It was admission. worth the price of admission. Yeah. Uh, but, I, yeah, I don't know. If, I, if you told me to work with sand or ice, <laughs> I would probably – I mean, I'd. what do you think? Would you rather see your artwork blown away or melt away? That's a fascinating <laughs> – what a fascinating restatement of that perennial dilemma. <laughs> I think I'd rather it, see it blown away. Yeah, so you don't like the sort of the gradual incremental trickle of, of your work? I think it's beautiful. I would like to observe someone else's work yeah. dissolve like that, but personally... <laughs> you prefer the blaze of glory. Yeah, yeah, exactly, the wham-bam situation. Um, but I, I want to know, there's what, 
what were you talking about off air? Oh, indeed. So, in addition, well, speaking of yeah, fun and games in the sand, I had some um, sort of more indoor-oriented activities. So, I went to Anthony Carew and Jill Farah's place yesterday. Anthony Carew, of course, of the International Pop Underground, and Jill Farah, um, an esteemed musician and sort of yeah polymath. They have reconstituted the very foundations of the game of Scrabble. Get out. Are you a Scrabble fan? I'm imagining you would be as a word uh, Most people do imagine that I am. I have a, a, I'm curious about it, but I'm not an expert. Okay, can I, can I read you the rules of their variation of yes, Scrabble? Yes, please. So it's called Poetry Scrabble, and the first rule is don't play on a Scrabble board. <gasps> With each turn, make the most poetic or pleasing word. Wow. Feel free to trade letters, tiles with other players. Don't score any points. Once all tiles are played, write a poem using or taking inspiration from the words played. Use as many or as few of the words as you like. I love that. It's so beautiful. I mean, I'm a fan of Scrabble, but I remember that Harris was talking to both of us before the quiz about how competitive we are. Yes. And I think I'm not especially competitive in these kind of domestic game-playing situations. And so something like this, which is purely collaborative and poetic, yeah. really appeals to me. Is there a way that we can inject, just to, to <laughs> please everybody, we can make it... A uh, not competitive in an intense way, but is the idea that at the end people read their poems? They do, mm. and so that's deeply confronting. Of course it is. But if we could have sort of a, the voice, like chair turnaround moment, <laughs> <laughs> whose poem are you turning around for? So that's hilarious. Okay, so we'll get someone. We'll rope in a. Th- let's say there are four people playing. Yeah. We rope in a fifth party. Right. Okay. How do we do this? If you're going to make it competitive, <laughs> yes. You would. Would you get someone to read? out the poems and so no one knew whose poem was whose. You would. You'd get an independent or maybe you'd nominate one person to read all the poems. Yes. I love that you're turning it into a voice. (laughs) The chair turn. And so would we can have either one judge turn around for their best poem or we vote survivor style. Whoever stays on the island. Yeah. Who got the best poem in what is it? Scrabble poetry. This is a new way to determine the poet poet laureate. You can count on me to ruin a game. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Melbourne's own Triple R. Ty Snaith is an artist, curator, podcaster and smart arts segment presenter who has written and illustrated a host of beloved picture books, including a most recent Wonders Under the Sun, a collection of daytime creatures. Ty's wonderful work is the feature of a new exhibition at Bayside Gallery titled Hierarchy of Needs. And to tell us about it, the newly minted cover star of Art Almanac joins us now. Ty, welcome back to Breakfasters. Oh, thanks, guys. It's so nice to be in here. It really is. a pleasure. It is for us indeed as well. Now, you're off to the gallery after this. What are you doing? I am lucky enough to be working with the amazing Bayside Gallery team, which are, they're such a great council gallery. Um, I'm not sure whether it's just people in Brighton pay more rates or anything. <laughs> or I'm not sure how that works, but they're great, mm. so I'm not complaining, but um, I will be working with their install team to install my show, which is a big solo exhibition uh, in one of their two big spaces. So, cool. Yeah, and they've called it immersive, which... I mean, when I think immersive, I think like sitting in things, but it's not its not like that. But there is uh, animations, there's a big wall work that I'm working on that's like six metres long, um, and there's a lot of the originals from my book so that have been put into new artworks. And yeah, immersed in the spirit that you're creating <laughs> yeah, and it. the love of nature. Yeah. That sounds immersive to me. Exactly, immersed in the, in the animal world. But um, it is sort of riffing off the hierarchy of needs, which is a... Theory written by a guy called Maslow uh, in, I think, the 40s. I'm never good with exact dates. But he, he basically created this triangle. It was for humans, you know. So, like, the, the bottom is what we need the most, which is, like, physiological needs. So shelter, food, water. And then it goes more and more, like, safety. And then right at the top is self-actualization. So art, we're all at the top now. You know? well, <laughs> yeah. Art, fashion, things like that that you don't really need, but you sort of do need the, the pointy end. And I started thinking... When I was researching my book with all the animals, I started thinking, well, if there was a hierarchy of needs for animals, what would that be? And really, like, I'm all about habitat at the moment, and so habitat is at the bottom. And so I thought it would be a cool idea for a show to put each of the categories as sort of categories of work. So in throughout the gallery you have the area that's all about habitat, that's at the bottom, and then I'm like, what would they have next? Um, work? 
because animals kind of work. <laughs> like when they're happy, then they like pollinate or they, you know, carry stuff or some things like the cassowary. He's really important because he eats these seeds from um, the rainforest and then poos them out. And the only way that tree can grow is if it goes through cassowary's poo. And wow. Grows out. Yeah, so that's sort of work, right? So I, I grouped them all into my ideas of what their hierarchy of needs would be. And it encourages viewers to then sort of actively, imaginatively engage with the inner life. Well, of, that's it. Yeah, yeah but also sort of have empathy for yeah. animals in the same way that we recognise we have needs. Absolutely. They also have needs. And if they don't have those basic needs like habitat, which we're sort of screwing with, then they can't do their work. And then right at the top, I'm like, what would they have instead of, you know, um, art and fashion? Play. So, so then there's this great bit where it's all about play and there's a few animations in that. Because animals do play when they're happy, which is really sweet. And there's also belonging and love. So there's this great work that's about these macaroni penguins that all look... I don't know if you've ever seen a macaroni penguin. Are they the ones with the cool haircuts? Yeah, they've yeah. got like a big yellow fringe. <laughs> but they all have the same weird yellow fringe. So it's a group of them and I made an animation with them all joining this big group. And So, yeah, it's, it's just a, a playful way to group them together and make the work sort of make sense, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Do you record your yourself working? Do you record yourself working? Um, that's a good question. Not really. I mean, me working would be like coming in and out of the room to like put a load of washing on. I'm one of those workers. Finding something else to do. Yeah, yeah, productive procrastinator. But like what about time lapse and that sort of stuff? I sometimes do. I sometimes set up a camera like above my hands and some of the animations in the show are actually that. So there's one work where I build the word home out of all sort of vegetation that I've cut and I speed, yeah, time lapse that and you can sort of see my process from sketching it right through to like positioning it and all the works are made with this technique I've been using for the last few years which is kind of like I paint first then I cut it up and then I collage it or work it out and I love that process because it's about sort of arrangement so when you paint just a picture you have to work out where everything is at the start whereas when you work like this you can play around with it and you can film it as well so it does lend itself to animation so the curator was like well why don't you do some new animations for this show so it was really fun I've got like five screens throughout the show with just some of them a process like a tadpole being drawn and growing into a frog and then you know some of them are much more like playful like a story and yeah yeah, it's been really fun speaking of stories obviously you're sort of sharing so much knowledge and so much empathy which is such a beautiful gift as well. Could you talk a little bit more about the relationship between the book that you've just published that Daniel mentioned and the exhibition? Yeah, so the book is my sixth picture book that I've made and I call them picture books because they're not just for kids. Um, I'm like a big kid, I'm a kid alt as my children call me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm basically just this 11 year old girl stuck in a 40 year old woman's body. Um, But yeah, so the book is called Wonders Under the Sun. It was published by Thames and Hudson and it's it's a non-fiction. It's actually just been nominated for the Children's Book Council oh, um, non-fiction award. Thanks. Yeah, and um, first one. And so it's it's non-fiction. So it's based in fact, where I researched nearly three hundred animals that come out under the sun. So diurnal animals Um, but then I put them into groups that are non-scientific groups so sort of like Thai science groups so they're things like spotted bottoms um, (laughs) swingers and clingers is one of my favourite groups and the the groups sort of have jokes for the parents a little bit so there's like home bodies, they're everything that carries their home on their back Um, yeah so there's about 15 different groups precious pollinators and they're they're just so that kids can sort of see them in a way that's um, a little bit more accessible than just like rodents because kids might go, oh, I don't know what that is. Mm. It's a very and intuitive categories. Intuitive yeah. categories and still true. Mm. And so each of them have the information about the animal, just very simple, like where they come from, how endangered they are, what they eat, what kind of habitat. But then each page has also like a really cool fact about one of the, the best animals. Um, and some of them, like, I, I mean, really, I, there were some animals I didn't even know about um, that I learnt from doing the book. And it's it's become a bit of an obsession I'm now planning the next book, which is Wonders Under the Moon, mm. which will be really fun because it's all things that come out at night. So there's going to be like party animals and <laughs> blood suckers, and yeah, so awesome. it, it's it's fun and it is it is nice to have all of this content that I could then sort of make into artworks. And this is the first time I've done that. So generally I've kept my picture books and my art practice kind of separate. Mm. And I think I've just reached some crescendo in my life where they're starting to 
come together. And so Bayside approached me about this show and I thought, yeah, I can make these into really cool big works. So the animals are very literal because they're to illustrate, you know, for the book, but then the settings that I've put them in are quite abstract. So the work that's on the cover of Art Almanac, it almost looks like some kind of dissipating horizon or red bricks leading into a scar, a heat glimmer sky but then there are some that are just pure pattern backgrounds um, and then others that are more literal mm. yeah. are there animals in your life that are a bit hacky or bore you but you know the punters <laughs> love them and... <laughs> like like what would you think is one of them oh uh, maybe a wombat yeah. I don't know. Quokkas. How... Oh, quokkas. sorry everyone <laughs> they're so base now I just don't like... like their faces yeah. i'm sorry so... i never got on that train <laughs> so basic quokkas <laughs> and they just don't they're everywhere yeah they're not even hard what are you to smiling find. at <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i don't know i'm really yeah australian animals i used to have a thing like oh i don't like drawing australian animals i think because you just grow up with them and they're not that special mm. but they are pretty unique. So yeah, I came to I've, I came to find Australian animals that were a little bit un- unusual that people didn't know. So things like weedy sea dragons. Oh, I love them. Amazing. And so there are some superstar Australian animals that aren't wombats. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean by wombat. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I, I was just going to ask. Though, I'm really interested in this the, the the idea of kind of engendering empathy in the viewer through I guess your book your illustration practice as well as your art practice because in a way it feels like we're kind of in a new frontier with that you know we've tried everything to say hey you know don't spray you know spray cans everywhere turn your lights off and it sort of hasn't really broken through but I think now that people are starting to recognize surprise that animals play work you know have these communities yeah did that feel like a kind of a way in particularly for kids to kind of get them to understand these environmental impacts that you're working with definitely and I think my very very first book which was 10 years ago was called the family hour and I was asked to do a book about Australian animals and I was like oh god boring you know so boring but my publisher kept saying Australian animal families like you know in science you say a plant family or an animal family but my brain just kept thinking of them as like <laughs> sitting in on the couch at home, you know, like having dinner and stuff. And so I said, I'll only do it if I can actually draw them like different families um, in Australia. And they were like, okay. <laughs> so, so I researched them and then I actually drew them as different socioeconomic Australian families. So there's like same sex. Um, couple the black swans because a third of black swans are actually um, same-sex parents which I thought was an amazing fact Um, that's why they're really quite successful as a breed and then there's like single parents and so in that book I really sort of stumbled upon this idea that kids when they're yeah when if they can identify with something that they're reading about of course they're going to have more empathy Mm. and it was pretty much um, picked apart by the science nerds though they hate that scientists hate it when you um, anthropomorphize animals Really, it's like a yeah. real bad thing to do. But at the same time, when you're working with kids, anything to get them to see from that point of view or just to, like, identify with the character... It becomes an entrance point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then when you start sort of talking about habitat or even drawing habitat or making it, um, yeah, like, if they can pay attention, I always think the, the first part of... The first step in taking action is just paying attention. Mm. So I'm like, well, pay attention to the book and then you might pay attention to, like, a type of grass and then you might go and get the grass and put it in your garden or you might just go to a protest and say, hey, don't cut down these trees because something lives there. So really it's just this real entry point to just... Um, being involved yeah. in our natural world, yeah. Well, but also, I don't want to tell scientists how to suck eggs, and I, <laughs> I understand that problem. But isn't it? I often think it's also a bit anthropocentric yeah. to, to look at animals. If you're just quietly observing animals, you can see they're playing. You know that they're doing something with purpose and. Isn't it then a sort of funny situation to be like, oh, no, no, it's not. They're just, you know, just dumb things doing what they do because they're supposed to. Totally. And how snobby of us to be like, oh, yeah, but we're better than that. That's right. Only we can play. Actually, I think... I often think they're more evolved than us. Like they have these beautiful lives where it's so simple, but and yet they do have things like belonging, meaning, love. You know, there are all these studies coming out now that, yeah, animals do have a lot of care for each other and that obviously expresses that they're intelligent beings that have emotions and, yeah, but, I mean, beyond that, their, need, their basic needs are just not being met at the moment mm. and I think that that's just really shocking. You know, we're, we're making decisions daily that are basically wiping out species. So, 
Um, I've given up on adults, though, because, because <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, Fair. Yeah, and at least kids aren't yet thinking about, you know, money in the same way that adults are, and I think money's probably our biggest problem. Yeah. But, um, you know, if I can get kids young to sort of start thinking, okay, well, yeah, this is our place, but also we can make space for these other creatures. And there's a practical section in the back of my book, which was really fun to write. It was like what you can do, you know, how you can help. And it's everything from making a protest sign to keeping your cat in at night. or And that is is a really great um, thing to, for me to do because when I was a kid, I always wanted that little bit mm. of extra. And I guess with this show, I really started thinking, okay, well, I was a very creative kid, but I was also very passionate about the environment and really earnest and ethical and stuff. And um, I guess I wanted someone to show me how I could apply my creative skills to actually sort of make change instead of just make things for rich people's houses, <laughs> which is also fine. <laughs> Any rich people out there John, if you listen. want my things, they're all for sale. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know what I mean? Like I wanted, so I, I, I would have liked to have a role model that showed me um, that there were ways you could use your creative skills to actually affect change. Yeah. Well, to explore these issues through Ty's beautiful art, head to Hierarchy of Needs, an exhibition by Ty Snaith. It's at Bayside Gallery in Brighton, uh, starting the the 11th of March to the 5th of May and entry is free and walk-ins are welcome. And also in the school holidays, I think they're planning a really fun workshop that I'm doing at a local uh, park called the Chain of Ponds, which is such a cool. great name. I know. I'm like, that would be great al- album title, <laughs> Chain of Ponds. Um, so I'm going to go there. You can book for that. And basically we were sitting in the natural environment and doing like a drawing club. So it's super fun. And we use lots of nice like watercolour pencils and you get to meet me and I can sign books and things like that. So there is also a bit of, oh, and also I forgot to say the funnest thing in the show is there's this little nook, like an education area. You know how shows all have these little things now. And they're like, what kind of workshop would you run? And I started thinking about when I was a kid, I loved writing my signature. So, and I actually designed my current signature when I was about 10 and I still use it. (laughs) Excellent branding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it just lasts the distance. But so it's it's a workshop you can do on how to how to like make your signature reflect you and cool. who you are That's and awesome. it, it looks also at animals signatures because they have footprints and howls and so there's a series of works around that but then there's a little video of me talking about how you can like zhuzh up your signature <laughs> to add a bit of your character <laughs> in oh, signing up see you there beautiful yeah. well you can follow <laughs> Ty Snaith on uh, social media and also head to the website uh, which is I don't I can't even remember the, the, the Bayside Council website Oh, there it is, bayside.vic.gov.au. For more information about Hierarchy of Needs, an exhibition by Ty Snaith. Ty, thank you as always for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. From Bite Into It, Wednesdays on Triple R, we're joined by globetrotting expert Vanessa Tolka. Morning, Vanessa. Good morning. Gosh, it's nice to be described as globetrotting. It's aspirational. <laughs> that was very cool. Very oh. aspirational. Well, we have stopped you before you head off. <laughs> You've slowed me down. And I, gosh, I need it because I need to take a deep breath. I've got the pre-travel jitters, that excitement, that worry that you've forgotten something to, you know, that you need to do. Mm. Um, but also, you know, South by Southwest is a bucket list item for me. Now, I think... I wanted to talk about it today in Tech Talk because for most Triple R listeners, I imagine they think about the music side of the festival, maybe the film side. But South by Southwest Interactive has been going a long time and the stream of of it happening at the festival, it's a 10-day festival, actually goes the whole length of the festival, which all those other tracks don't. Um, It attracts actually the biggest um, proportion of the audience compared to the other ticketed tracks. Um, Other than the proportion of audience that just rock up to South by Southwest, which is something I didn't actually realise you could do. You can just rock up without a ticket, queue for things, you know, pay for things ad hoc and just take your chances. Um, And good on people who've got the opportunity to do that. That must be nice. But I thought I'd tell you a little bit about the history of the 
of the festival because it gives it a bit of context. They call themselves the biggest music festival in the world and then I can't find out on what metric they base that. <laughs> you know, is that attendees? Is that number of artists? Is it whatever? I have no idea. Verifiable, who knows? Um, but they kicked off in 1987 with their inaugural music-only festival. They had 177 artists, 15 stages, 15 panels and workshops. So for an inaugural, it was still pretty ambitious. Um, very impressive. Then I'm going to race forward to what I care about, which is in 1994, they had their first film and interactive um, events. And it was sort of combined. They called it the Film and Media Conference component. Um, so music was still happening, but they added like film and media. The next year they realised they hadn't got that quite right, mashing film and media together quite that way. You know, because you can imagine in that time... The World Wide Web is taking off, mm. you know, people are talking about, is it safe to buy something on the internet? You know, like, you know there's all these discussions. We're on the cusp of Windows 95. Ah, you know, it's, it's, there's so much um, curiosity and exploration and, and frontier growing and the decision was made to split this film and media conference into two new events. So you had film and then Interactive was born in 95. Incredible, you know. I'm still in high school at this point, you know, this isn't even a glimmer in my eye. Uh, but there you go. I'm going to jump forward and just, you know, radically play with time because... Um, You're a tech expert. Well, <laughs> you can. there's just so much information. Uh, so in 2006, um, there were a bunch of interactive keynotes that were really significant. Um, you had uh, people like Jason Kotke and uh, the guy who started Craigslist, whose name's Craig Newmark, and you had Jimmy Wales from Wikipedia, and famously Bruce Sterling, who's a sci-fi author. He's got 10 books out. He did the closing remarks, um, and he's done them a lot. Bruce Sterling is one of the things that attracted me to South by Southwest because Here's a person who's just writing about what the future could be, writing about the way that people interact with technology and it changes the world, and thinking about those things and telling it to the audience of people who are making the technology and just going out there and sort of slamming them or being <laughs> funny about it, throwing parties in the 90s during this festival at his house. People wouldn't know it was his house. They'd be critiquing the, uh, you know, the decor and what have you, and he'd just be like, oh, you know, that's very interesting. You know, <laughs> we, we attract a very interesting bunch. So he's based in Austin. So for me, a big part of going was actually the hope of seeing is Bruce Sterling going to close. Now, there's no word yet on whether he's going to close. He closed, you know, at the last festival. Um, we'll see. I've <laughs> tweeted at him. Anyway, we'll see. We'll see. I've got fingers crossed that it'll just happen secretly. Uh, in 2007, um, it was a big year for Twitter. So Twitter had launched um, several months before, but it hadn't really caught on yet. And then when they did um, a bunch of, you know, platforming at South by Southwest... Uh, they offered their platform to delegates so people could communicate with each other at the festival. And this is a real inception point for Twitter. This this made it kick off. Uh, so that's amazing. It sort of speaks to, you know, the difference that concentrating that amount of people um, and giving them space to think and play can really accelerate kind of things. And as, as you say, I guess... Maybe some festivals or conferences would claim to be influential, but it seems like these are the, the leaders in their fields. And yeah. so something that happens at South by Southwest does accelerate its dissemination. I think it does. You know, uh, the stats are that one in, one in um, four people at the festival are not Americans, like not from the States. So it does actually attract a big worldwide audience. And when you're talking about the sort of numbers, Interactive gets over 30,000 people buying tickets um, that's incredible. Music gets about 28,000, you know, so it's, it's also huge. And, you know, film and um, education are a bit smaller than that. Uh, other significant things, I guess, um, 2014, Edward Snowden Skypes into the festival and, you know, gives his keynote on what he really thinks is going on. It's You just can't understate the significance of that. Um, then, uh, you know... Both the Obamas did keynotes in 2016 and Barack Obama focused on, you know, what technology could do to solve problems that the country was facing. Um, so that was pretty... Like, they've got amazing pulling power, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Mm. Um, in 2020, they cancelled the festival for the first time due to a little virus that we all know. And then in 2021, they didn't have the live event. They went fully virtual. And they were perfectly poised to do that as an event. 
And then they got back on track um, the year after. So I had tickets to 2020. I was ready to go in a few weeks before they pulled the pin. Wow, the the moment's upon us. I know, the moment is here. I'm stoked. And I guess, you know, I'm going to try and get inspired. I'm I'm sure that there will be downers, that, you know, maybe there won't be enough representation of minorities and and maybe it'll be a bit ham-fisted and what have you in in terms of how I would um, expect the best kind of tech conversation to happen. But with so many people, there've got to be some great conversations there. There've got to be some great sessions. I'm loving the focus on um, solving climate problems. You know, uh, there's... Yeah, yeah. is there a sense looking... Sorry to interrupt you, Mm. by the way, in terms of looking at the agenda. I'm just so excited about what's getting you Uh, excited. I know. (laughs) Are there a a few in particular, like conversations or panels that you're... Yeah, yeah, there's there's tons. I mean, you know, there's engineers getting into the in-depth of transport and logistics on, like, auto trucking and going, look, you know, this whole auto individual car thing is a bit of a furphy. That's not where we're going to make great gains. You know, it's still individuals and individual vehicles. But if we can get them moving around a supply chain sort of stuff happening, that makes a big difference. And, you know, how can we do that? And, you know, you've got eight interactive tracks this year for, you know, the tech part of the festival, and, and they include design and energy and health and med tech and um, tech industry and transportation. Um, But I think that there's so much energy there around solving problems. It's like, how do I liberate myself from, you know, oh, no, I've accidentally met a crypto bro. I need to escape here (laughs) because there's going to be someone else I need to be talking to, you know, and learning from and potentially collaborating with in the future. Um, There's tonnes of Aussies going, you know, uh, the Vic government and the New South Wales government, at least I haven't done the rest of the research, are taking delegations of startups and helping them get more exposure in the US markets. You know, there's tonnes of bands going, of course, but, you know, triple aren't people know about that. Um, and that's also wonderful. But, you know, there's an Australia house where we showcase what Australia's doing. There's a Canada house. There's a UK house. There's, you know, there's a Southeast Asia focus on talent coming out of there and entrepreneurs and, you know, how we can connect them up and give them more recognition. And I, I, I'm just so excited by the potential Um and when I come back, I hope you indulge me. Oh, of course. And let me, let me report back and be like, was I disappointed? Was it amazing? Can't wait. Did I resist the uh, the swag that's going to add to trash in the world? <laughs> yes. yes, I'm going to. Don't <laughs> criticise any decor in a stranger's house. No, that's my advice. No. <laughs> mm. yes. Well, Vanessa, we all benefit from your junket and we cannot <laughs> wait to hear you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Triple R. You mentioned earlier, Simon, a game that was invented, Poetry Scrabble. <laughs> That's right. Uh, which is not about the number of letters within a word, but about the, would you say, maybe mellifluousness of the word? Exactly this. It's, a, it's such a stunning game. I'm not sure if everyone was tuning in before, but to sort of briefly recap the rules, um, Poetry Scrabble, invented by Triple R's own Anthony Carew and Jill Farrer, polymath and musician, is essentially, as you say, all of what you traditionally associate with Scrabble is subverted. The words aren't counted for points, but they are, um, yeah, sort of laid down in a collaborative fashion for pure love of language. Beautiful. (laughs) And it just strikes me as people wonder or find new ways to to play. I see that the toy libraries are booming across Victoria. Uh, They're going absolutely ballistic. There was an international toy library conference uh, in Melbourne at the this week, which I don't, I must have missed that next to the air show and fashion week <laughs> and Ed Sheeran and everything else. Uh, but so there was $700,000 given to grow toy libraries because its membership is just going wild. Uh, there are 380 plus libraries have surged over the past two years. There are more than 130,000 families using the service every year. And apparently there are toys can get quite expensive because they're not toys that maybe an individual family can buy. But I was wondering, I haven't been into a toy library in a long time and I'm wondering what I would like to see in a toy library. And I'm not sure, do people still use those, uh, what, cup and ball? (laughs) (laughs) This this century, yeah, I wonder. (laughs) I mean, it seems like a perennial favourite, doesn't it? What's, What's to go wrong there? Imagine seeing a child 
entertain themselves with a couple. You would you would feel like you'd won the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is that something that does feature in your childhood? Well, yeah. I mean, I I don't think I've I maybe got one in fifty. It's the balls attached to the string and you throw it up. But so in addition to the two cups on either side, like a hammer, there's also a, a well a spike. Yes. That if you're lucky. If, I mean, I never got it. No, it's a test of dexterity, but it does feel like it's rigged against the user. It's like, oh, yeah. yeah, that's so true. Yeah. It must have, yeah, it's really primed you for the fairground <laughs> experience. Uh, I think aerobies, is an aerobie a toy? Oh, absolutely. Definitely well suited to the outdoors. Very aerodynamic. The same inventor as the aeropress. Well. Is that true? Indeed. Oh, right, yeah. Because I, I was, I don't, I'd be surprised if you borrowed an aerobie from a toy library if the toy library would ever see it again. Well, Because they get caught in trees. They go too far. Yes. Yes. Probably get too, too successful. Yeah. Because yeah. as you know, I'm a uh, – I, while I'm a fan of aerobies, I – just I uh, refute the idea that they belong to the Frisbee family. How fascinating. I hope you don't mind me derailing this discussion. No, but I'm please. not sure if I'm familiar with your theory. Like, well, yeah, your well I, I, I just think a Frisbee is controlled and minor and, you know, and with a manageable distance. Mm. But an aerobie <laughs> um, promotes kind of just like aggressive, uh, wild uh, hurling. I see what you mean. It becomes purely about distance and subverting those kind of yeah basic principles of the frisbee. Uh, yeah, I just feel like with the with the success of the aerobie frisbees, maybe got overlooked. Maybe I'm wrong, and they're back in. But there is a small sense that perhaps yeah, aerobies have done a disservice to the general. That's frisbee right. Family. That's my view. Okay, <laughs> and I'm going to come down hard on that. I did notice also. I would like to have seen if I went to a toy library of Vortex. Oh, please, please let me know more about the vortex. The vortex is like a, a gridiron ball, like they would, but with a tail on it. Oh, how fantastic. And so it goes far. It goes further than an ordinary ball. But in this context, you don't mind the distance. In this context, I don't mind because it's directional. Oh, I see. Mm. <laughs> As opposed to yeah. chaotic. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, but a vortex, what I, one thing I noticed is that they put in whistles on the side, so as it goes through the air, it would make a noise. And so it sort of emphasises your ability and skill in an auditory way. It does do that, but I was wondering whether that was also a design feature so beachgoers or parkgoers knew that it was coming for the uh, head. As opposed to the yells of yeah. distressed onlookers. Yeah, I because think. obviously in golf we yell four, but I, does four doesn't appear to... Uh, you know, we don't put four in any other context. No, and in fact, until you said it just then, I sort of, I, mean, I don't play golf very often, but I've forgotten that that was like a, yeah. a convention. Yeah, I feel like four should be a more broad convention for vortexes and errant aerobies. <laughs> Is there, what would you like to see in a toy library? Well, I mean, I was always a big fan of Lego, but I think, yeah, I mean, due to various factors, didn't necessarily have as much Lego as I would have desired. <laughs> and so I spent a lot of time poring over the Lego catalogue as if it were a novel oh. in which I was studying, you know, plot points and characters it's and so quite thick isn't it's it quite thick and so it was a you know fairly sort of satisfying substitute for the reality of actually playing with it you yeah. can sort of yeah imagine your own yeah scenarios so yeah more, more lego for me maybe. so you uh, did you didn't leave it around like as a hint, <laughs> as a hint. <laughs> it was more innocent point. or it was i think it might have been more innocent i used to go into the shops and yeah pick up a free catalog and it sort of was a Fairly adequate substitute for actually having the sex. Yeah, because yeah. as you know, also I'm contemplating getting into remote control cars. I know I'm very supportive of this. Mm. Yeah, and I I feel like remote controlled cars like the Frisbee maybe got overtaken by say helicopters or planes or drones and drones and that yeah. sort of thing. Whereas I uh, I've seen someone use a drone. And smash it and destroy it within thirty seconds. Yeah, like isn't the idea that once it's airborne, you know you Take it to its limit. Indeed, as opposed to bringing it crashing back down again. That's right. Yeah. So that's why I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to the remote control car. I mean, there's also one thing I don't like when people give presents like magnetic or is it kinetic sand? Oh, okay. These are all new for me. I'm really out of touch with the. But like, it's sand that is like sticks to each other. Oh, yes. <laughs> or slime. Oh, slime, yeah. That's a short lived sort of. I, yeah, I just don't think. I think slime is a purchase. I mean, I don't think anyone's getting used slime from a toy library. No. Uh, so kinetic sand and slime f- feels to me to be something that you shouldn't give somebody else. No. Like it's it's a recipe for – it's like, here, have fun, you deal with it. I see. Uh, 
Now, the slime is obviously gross and it collects all manager, manage, uh, all manner of crap. Uh, the, there's also trains. Oh, I'll, yeah, were you a train set person? No. No. <laughs> I, could, I can't work out trains or slot cars. I saw, actually, I saw a film, Malcolm. Do you, have you seen this one? It's like a classic of Australian cinema of the early 80s, and I think the protagonist had an extraordinary house-sized train set, which yeah. appeals to me. I'll admire it, yeah. but I don't... You know what? It goes around the loop, yeah. And then what? Like it goes around the loop again. <laughs> like I, I mean, I, I, there's something obviously I'm missing. Yeah. But uh, there's a listener says Meccano. Oh yeah, that's yeah. Meccano is interesting in contrast to Lego in the sense that Lego will always fit precisely and perfectly, whereas Meccano there's more tolerance for error, and so small little uh, how do you say misalignments can accumulate to. F- to form like a completely malfunctioning item. And so I was always a little bit less engineering oriented. And so Lego appealed to my sort of sensibility. So I'm sorry, but you build Meccano and it yes. gets too big. And it's, it's only when it's too big that you realize the error was way yes, back. All of those small incremental errors accumulate yeah. yes, over time. Yeah. And but I can't handle that degree of um, learning and responsibility. No, at such a young age. That's right. Triple R. So Queer Australia is the new queer history show on ABC uh, presented by Zoe Coombs-Ma and Nayuka Gori. And it is, if you've watched it, um, absolutely incredible. It's quite irreverent. It's If you've seen Zoe's work, it's very similar in its kind of narrative loops to some of her shows. And I think in that way, it's very queer. Um, two, we're two episodes in now. There's an episode to go. I spoke to Zoe yesterday about bringing the show to air. Congratulations on Queer Australia. The main question I have is how do you attempt to counter the overwhelming straightness of how history has been told in Australia? (laughs) Um, I mean, with um, a brave face um, (laughs) and a lot of gusto, it was, I mean, it's it's sort of impossible really, but any history is kind of impossible. Like, you know, history is sort of, it's made up of everything, everything that's ever happened. So... There's only, you know, there's only so much you can do and tell. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I guess with approaching this particular story, it was about, like, telling these queer stories, the queer histories that um, exist in, you know, all throughout Australian history. And there's a lot. Like, we've been there the whole time. And we've been doing stuff the whole time. So there's, like, there's there's tons of stuff there, incredible stories. Um, For me, it was also not just about telling the stories, but also telling them in a queer way as yeah. well. So um, kind of, you know, approaching history in a, a bit of an irreverent, like different sort of way to how we would normally do history. And that was really important as well. Um, yeah, so it's not like your boring history class. It's a real, it's a romp. Well, um, I, I mean, that was one of the things down. that I found most exciting about it I mean I guess for people who have seen your work and particularly I guess your work with Dave you know some of those narrative loops will sort of feel familiar but it also felt like it was a very kind of queer notion of the way that time uh and becoming you know kind of the way that we experience that in the queer community Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think it felt to me like it's not just, um, you know, so I tell the story in quite a a non-linear way, which isn't just, it's not just for funsies, it's not just me (laughs) being cheeky, although it's a little bit of that, but it's also, it felt to me the truest way to tell this story and to um, try to make sense of a whole lot of these disparate, like, different stories that don't always match up and they don't have an easy place to slot into. So mm. that, yeah, and, and I think also the way that um, the way that queer history works is, is kind of different in a lot of ways to the kind of mainstream straight history uh, in that because people have been so isolated and, and necessarily so, people have had to hide their identities you know, it was illegal, uh, homosexuality was illegal uh, in Tasmania until 1997. So people have really hidden their identities, but it also means they've been hidden from each other. So mm. there's, like, people are kind of living their lives in isolation and not really affecting each other. And So there's not really any big major queer events until, like, the 1970s. There's no kind of broader thing that people are able to look to. So they're kind of doing these things on their own, which makes for a really interesting history. But it also means that 
there's not the same kind of time cause and effect thing that there would be with, you know, for instance, when you look at like, you know, any anything else where there's yeah. like a big public thing. Like if there's a war, it has an effect on the whole nation. Whereas like queerness is kind of, it sort of exists in this different place. So yeah, it has to be told in a different way. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned war because I think episode two is very interesting in terms of looking at queerness in the context of that notion of Australian cultural identity, but particularly through a, a gendered lens, you know, the idea of mateship, the idea of the bloke and the Sheila. And, and it was fascinating to hear some of the things that, that, you know, the show uncovered in the context of, say, World War Two. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people really wouldn't know that there was, of course, there were gay soldiers and there were um, there were all sorts of, you know, uh, there, were lo- there was a lot of drag during the Second World War and a lot of the culture of drag that we know today has come out of these performing troops from the First and Second World War. Um, and, yeah, it's this kind of very much a part of the history, but it's sort of really hidden because we get this overarching, like, blokey mateship type of thing. Um, yeah, and then there were also a lot of women who joined the services as well. And because they're these sort of homosocial environments, they're actually quite attractive to a lot of queer people. So a lot of queer people really found each other and themselves during the during wartime. And, um, yeah, I guess that's, that's, that's not a story you often hear on Anzac Day. No. <laughs> and I found that, you know, incredibly moving as a result because I suppose in the queer community we are familiar with, you know, the 78ers. There are, there are narratives that are maybe more... You know, you, you've said going into this show there was a lot of queer history that you didn't know yourself, but I do feel like there are there are aspects of it that are familiar to us and then there's stuff like that which is probably a real revelation for a lot of people even within the queer community. Yeah, absolutely, and that's one thing that I found really kind of amazing and really rewarding about doing this is that, I, you know, so much of it I didn't know. And so that's that's been the, the aim, I suppose, with this show as well is not just telling, like, the untold queer history that's not part of like the straight history but also what are the what are the queer histories that aren't really included in understood queer history you know like you say Mm. most people probably have a sense of the Mardi Gras and you know but a lot of people think that that's kind of where gay liberation people gay liberation started is with the Mardi Gras and there's a whole lot of stuff before that there's all sorts of different um ways that communities have formed and people have lived different lives and of course then that's really different depending on um different people's identities so you know a um lesbian history is very different to gay male history which is very different to trans history um so that's kind of really interesting as well and the way that those and then within that as well like a working class Mm. lesbian in the 1920s is totally different to a middle-class lesbian in the 1880s, like totally, or even in the 1920s, just really different experiences. Yeah. How do you – I'm interested in in that that balance that that you've struck because I think, you know, kind of the Venn diagram collision between queer identity and gender identity is something that you touch on in the show um, and particularly in episode two. Uh, Was that a difficult balance to strike, uh, the extent to which to kind of – think about those ideas of gender within queerness? Yeah, look, it's, it's been... Um, it's, it's both a difficult balance to strike and also not because um, it's difficult in the way that... Often the way that people's stories have played out are very different. So narratively, it's sometimes really... It's difficult to um, tell for instance, gay male stories alongside the stories of trans women mm. um, because they uh, there are lots of crossovers, but they there's lots of periods of time where they don't cross over at all. Certainly, you know, like um, there's, there's so many differences in the way. So you don't want to kind of water down people's experiences by saying, oh, well, they're all sort of just the same. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's interesting, especially when we're looking at earlier 20th century, um, and this is a lot of what we cover in episode two, the way that we've come to understand those identities, for a long time, gender and sexuality were really conflated as mm. the same sort of thing. So people were referred to as, you know, the idea of an invert as being like a kind of a catch-all for homosexuals, but also for trans people as well. So it was that if you were homosexual, you were viewed as being the way they can 
conceived it, like early sexologists, was essentially that you were either a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. And that's where this kind of inverted or upside down, like, sexual desire came from. Mm. So we've actually been treated very much in the same way. And it's only in more recent years that those, um, that those, those identities have become more kind of you know, compartmentalised or kind of better defined. And that's also ongoing. That, that's one thing I found really interesting is that the way that our, um, our identities have been framed has really changed over time as well, and they're, they're very much constructed. Yeah. Too. So, yeah, it's, it's a balance there, I guess. On that note of, of constructing and, and self-fashioning, I was so excited to see Julie Peters involved and, and listeners may have seen there's a little short uh, Compass documentary about Julie last year and her incredible trans archive. But, I mean, when She's is she gonna, when is she going to release a coffee table book of those incredible selfies? They're just – every time oh, I, I get a glimpse of them, I'm so excited. Oh, my God. And there are so many. So, yeah, Julie – um, yeah, Julie's incredible. She's sort of uh, being in her house where she's collected this, she's sort of accidentally collected this archive of trans history just from her own interest in sort of trying to find herself. She's kind of like this identity bird. I think a lot of her friends call her a hoarder, but now that she's kind of been recognised as an archivist, she's like, see, I told you. But yeah, those selfies that she's taken are really um, incredible from like, yeah, I guess she sort of started in like the 70s, I think, um, taking all those photos. There's shoeboxes full. There's like a whole, there are so many of them, like thousands of photos where she's really just trying trying on different identities and trying to work out who she is. And interestingly, she stopped um, taking those photos once she transitioned. So that was also really interesting to seeing the way that people, you know, in the absence of any kind of uh, larger narrative or clarity around who and what they are and where they should fit into society, people have really have found a way to, to work that out and to live as their authentic selves, which is really inspiring and really, you know, incredible. It really is. I think that's one of the most moving parts of the show, which, I mean, tragically there are only three episodes in in this, uh, I was about to say, season. <laughs> are you currently on the blow to ABC? <laughs> are you in, insisting that there's going to be another 25 episodes? Oh, my God, no. Do you know how hard it is to make documentaries? <laughs> But it's, but we do have, there is like, um, you know, there are so many stories that we couldn't include and so many people that we did actually film with who didn't end up making it into the show just because the, the, the pure volume of incredible stories. So, yeah, that's, um, that's, there's certainly enough material for everyone. Go forth and make a queer documentary. There's heaps of gear out there, heaps of material. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, hopefully this is the crest of the wave and, and the, the dam will break soon and we can look forward to more so thank you very much for for joining us oh thanks for having me the amazing zoe coombs ma and the final episode of queer australia is next week on abc at 8 30 p.m and you can catch up on the rest of the episodes on iview triple r Everything's fine because Simone Yaboli's here. Morning, Simone. Good morning. <laughs> uh, now, you watch a lot of movies and you come here to talk about them. I watch, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Why does it always feel like an interrogation? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I want I you watch, to cough I up a gym seat. Average amount. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm an everyman. That's, oh, why, yes, that's, that's why you have me. That's what we know about you. I did go and I didn't, I didn't see this film this week. I saw this film on a plane. Oh, wow. Was that a good context for this film, would you say? Or is that ever a good yeah. context? No, there's no, there's no good, there is no good reason. To, well, I mean, you're trapped there. That's a good reason to yeah, watch a film true. on a plane. I may not. It may have passed me by if I went flying all Nippon Airways. I do not recommend um, with a selection over an 18-hour uh, flight of six movies. Um, and so eventually, I made my way through. I made my way past the romantic comedies to this one. Um, and it is a very small film that sort of has passed by most people, except that the lead actress, Andrea Rosman, has been nominated for Best Actress, so its its public profile has been reinvigorated through that nomination. And she's very worthy of a nomination, and it's a really beautiful film. Excellent. What, have we mentioned what film we're talking about yet? It's called To Leslie. <laughs> 
I was about to say, and I'm going back to bed. <laughs> Good night. It's called to Leslie. Have any of you? I haven't seen it yet, but I'm, I'm aware of the. I, I hesitate to say controversy, but but from what I've heard, the film was such a small production they couldn't afford the usual for your consideration ads in the trade, so they got all the other actors to say, please nominate this amazing performance. That is amazing, and I did not know that. Oh, there you go. And walking in here and listening to you talk about um, what were you talking about this morning? Barbie. Oh, Barbie. Yeah, Greta Gerwig. <laughs> I was like, I feel like maybe I should just let Clem do the segment. Today. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, but it doesn't surprise me. It is a really tiny budget film. I can tell you what it's about. Anyway, um, it is about a woman called Leslie who is uh, an alcoholic in small town America who wins the lottery um, in the pre-story of the film, and blows all the money on booze, um, breaking the heart of her very small child in the process. So at the beginning of the movie, Leslie, we're kind of six years down the line, she's broke, she is um, itinerant uh, and trying to find a kind of safe harbour while still being uh, a really severe alcoholic. And the first place that she goes to is to her now um, young adult son's share house burns that bridge, back to see some friends in her small town, burns that bridge, and eventually finds her way into the care of a of a run-down sort of Motel 6 owner, owner's motel, and he offers her a kind of job as a cleaning lady, and her character evolves from there. Um, really, there's lots of... There are actually a lot of beautiful... No wonder you didn't like the flight. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like great place to run. It's beautiful. Yeah. Also because, you know, you're primed for like 50% more tears. Yeah, of course. Plane, and this is a good movie to satisfy that. Yeah, get it out. Psycho-biological <laughs> need. Yeah. Psychological and biological need. Maybe psycho. <laughs> anyway, um, the film is underpinned by a host of beautiful performances and a really uh, raw naturalism. Uh, Mark Maron is in it. He plays Sweeney, and even though he's been, he, he's uh, he made the wrestling series for Netflix. Oh, Glow, Glow, did a decent job. Bit parts left, right, and centre. He really kind of has like in full flower in this film as a just a, a man with a real kind of soul and depth of compassion. But he makes it real. I was going to say it feels like this is the first time I've seen him playing what looks like a decent person. Yeah. You know. He's often playing the asshole with a heart of gold, or maybe not even a heart of gold. Yeah, true. And he and he is so gentle in this role, and so he's got like he's got like kind daddy energy in the role. It's mm. really and it really kind of carries you through because it's hard to watch what Leslie does to herself and what happens to her in the movie, um, but incredibly compelling to watch because Andrea Reisman, who you're going to know her face, she's been in, I think she might be British. She's, she, she is. Yeah. She's in Oblivion with Tom Cruise. And Never Let Me Go mm. and Happy Go Lucky. She's had, little, she's had lots of actual quite substantial roles, but this is obviously the real vehicle f- to show the world how truly brilliant she is. I suspect maybe the guy who made the film, who was director at the Old Vic for a long time, Probably, which is a theatre in London, probably worked with her in that context and knew that she was capable of this absolute, like, just gobsmacking, heart-wrenching performance um, as a woman trying and trying and trying and failing and failing and failing and ultimately, you know, redeeming mm. herself. Which, if I had a criticism of the film, not to get into too much detail... Oh, actually, I wanted to mention Owen Teague as well, who plays her son. God, he's just so vulnerable. And for a man who is on that kind of cusp of young man adulthood to be able to basically show us the kind of the little boy inside in relation to his mother is really, it's a, it's a key kind of beautiful element of the film, Driver at the End. The one thing about it is that it is, it is ultimately a redemption story. Mm. And I was thinking about, I was trying to think about like addiction cinema and where people have been less needed to put less of a kind of bow on the end of the story and it and it either from my memory falls into kind of exploitation your kind of requiems for a dream mm. or your train spotting or we are just really so obsessed with this need to to know that it's going to be okay when watching people being so debased and and so sad um in the context of a kind of grinding capitalist society or small town anonymity but i was thinking of it reminded me of Shuggy Bain have you guys read that book I oh, know. yeah. Yes. 
So, I mean, Shuggy Bain, which is something that's, you know, written from a similar perspective. The screenwriter of To Leslie was writing about his own mother. Shuggy Bain was about the author's experience of his own mother's alcoholism. Does not shy away from um, the the damage that's inflicted that, that lasts through a lifetime and, and the fact that addiction is a very, very difficult cycle to break. And whereas To Leslie just needs to, like, get us to the end of the film without wanting to... Mm. We need, you know, it, it's a film and it's a different kind of payoff, um, which I think is like the least strong thing about the movie. Is it plausible, the redemption? I mean, it's not offensively implausible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fine and it's and it's emotional, but you can feel yourself being manoeuvred. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and it's in a diner, which is like, why do all, why do all small town American stories need <laughs> What is what is what do you need to come to Jesus in a diner? Anyway, but um broadly speaking, it's a really fantastic little movie. And Andrew's a fantastic actress. And if for no other reason that if you're an Oscar watcher, mm. um, you wanna know why this who this woman is standing on stage accepting her statue. Do you think she's a chance? I don't actually know who else has been nominated. I am not an Oscar watcher. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say so, though. I mean, if there are, if there is a groundswell, people love an underdog. Yeah. If there's a groundswell of people saying this is... Well, it worked for Melissa Leo. There like, everyone go. famously, she did her own for your consideration ads, which were deemed to be very embarrassing at the time, which was just a photo of her saying, consider. Um, <laughs> then she won, so... Well, I hope, I hope the same for Andrea Riseborough, because she's, she's she, she worth it. And is, so this is a directorial debut? It is. Well, he's, he's made television. He made Brothers and Sisters, but I think principally a theatre man. Yes. And so do you, uh, we in for the long haul? You know, is it is, a long film? No, no. Well, no. <laughs> oh, the, the flight I was referring to. You know, um, I would have told you that in the first two minutes. Yeah. Uh, no, I wonder whether if you know, a director that pivots from theatre and TV or is like, oh, you, you really found your medium here. I think that there is a career for this somewhat middle-aged person, for sure. It did not have the it did not have the cumbersome um, the cumbersome weight of theatricality that sometimes people bring when they're mm. adapting theatre into film. Like, yeah, he's he's done a wonderful job. He's got and but conversely, on the positive side of that, he's gotten stuff out of his actors that feels to come more naturally to theatre directors. Um, they, I don't know. You always hear stories about them investing more time in pre-production in character development with the peoples, and that's good. Mm. <laughs> Does the performance outstrip the film? Because that's, that's what's been picked no. up. It doesn't. If she, was, if, she was, if she was out there on her own yeah. as the only actor that were really um, pulling weight in this movie, maybe, but they're all really wonderful. There's a guy, I think his name is Andre Royer, and he, I think that he has Native American heritage, who plays Royal, who's one of the other um, motel owners, and he has takes peyote and maybe has a bit of schizophrenia, and um, it's a smaller part than Mark Maron's, but even that's a really wonderful one. Or everyone in their own kind of idiosyncratic way is doing little heart punches in this movie. Um, and so it makes the whole movie worth watching. And it's not... A, it's not the kind of emotional grind that a Leaving Las Vegas is mm. or a Requiem for a Dream is mm. or, from what I hear, I haven't seen it yet, The Whale is. Like, you do not feel like you're just being um, dragged through a meat grinder. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely a really good story. That is an important distinction because all of those <laughs> movies really it's get so my blood pressure depressing. rising. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not depressing in that way. There are, there are, there's a lot of honesty in it, but it's um, you're with you, even when even at her lowest points, you're with her, I think, and you just you're rooting for her, and you're just frustrated that she's self sabotaging. All right. It's a real nice one. Where do we see to Leslie apart from at, 10,000 metres in the air? At the movies. <laughs> it's everywhere. It's, it, it is screening in uh, quality art house cinemas across Melbourne from today. Beautiful. Simone uh, Bowie, thank you. Thanks, guys. Triple R. Triple R. 
So after uh, almost two weeks of helping you both out on breakfasts, I feel like I've done pretty well mm. to resist the, my worst like five in a row style <laughs> FM radio talk break um, <laughs> impulses. But I can't, I can't do it any longer. And I just have to say, have you been to the supermarket lately? <laughs> I, hot cross buns have gone too far. Like in I just, I, I think I just need to say it. I, there are so many. I went to the supermarket the other day. Um, as I say this, I feel my hair going blonder. Um, my outfit turning into a bright pink stretchy dress um and there were not like at least 15 varieties there mm. was it, it looked like one of those revolving magazine racks and it was all hot cross buns and there's savory ones now as well there's a you know famously i haven't tried it yet there's one which is like big mac sauce flavored apparently right um but i just what's going on they've gone the way of potato chips yeah i feel like a hot cross bun's a hot cross bun see i, I have a lot of sympathy oh, for the, the hot cross bun and i feel like it is unfortunately one of the more contentious baked goods out there in the sense that from the very moment of their arrival there are people complaining that it is too early for them yeah. to appear and so that but is just the beginning of their them. trouble everyone <laughs> everyone loves them but of course as you mentioned there are so many <laughs> varieties available there are the fruit the non-fruit there's the, marzi- the marzipan cro- i mean i it might not surprise you to know that i've thought about this quite a I lot i was gonna <laughs> say simon you are a, like sn- basically a snack professor <laughs> <laughs> and and so yes i do I, I completely understand the position of, of the purists who prefer a particular type of recipe to be adhered to, but as a, a vehicle for self-expression and for the discovery <laughs> of, of new flavours, I feel like the hot cross bun has so much to offer all of us. And Interesting. Have you tried any of the savoury ones? Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by the ones you've described. So, I'm, yeah, apparently the – well, it's special burger sauce. It's not officially Big Mac sauce, but it's – yeah, it's like a kind of tangy mayo flavour with, with pickle chips in it. <laughs> like, I mean, it doesn't sound awful, but it's not a hot cross bun. Mm. Do people monkey around with a cross or is it everything around I feel around like the cross? cross is always there. I did see one with no cross and I was like – Okay. Uh, what was <laughs> an atheist hot cross bun? <laughs> it's like because I guess some people don't like the cross. Maybe like, you brought the cross in this case with the well, anchor at its. Um... It, we... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, no one's out here saying the crosses. I don't think we're in danger of having like a muffin top business, which is just hot, the crosses of hot cross buns. But I feel like to be a hot cross bun, it has to have a cross on it. I believe so. At the bare minimum. Otherwise, it's just a little fruit bun. And so you're you're all about, uh, I guess, sultanas or fruit. Classic. Or classic. Yeah, absolutely classic. And what is classic? A classic uh, is... I would say it's similar to a like plum pudding or fruitcake okay. mix. So it's probably raisin sultanas, bit of mixed peel, a yeah. um, little bit of spices. And what's what's the threshold of acceptability? <laughs> yes. is, is chocolate... I don't like chocolate okay. in the hot cross bun. I'm sorry, but I feel like that was the first, uh, you know, step into the new hot cross bun horizons because mm. I can remember when they came out and it was like whoa whoa but I suppose in the scheme of things chocolate and mixed fruit it's not an unbelievably unusual combination mm. you know there's plenty of chocolate blocks with that combo but yeah now it's just like all right apple and cinnamon okay you know salted caramel this that and the other like yeah because I know we have the scone debate obviously with the you know jam or oh, cream on okay but, but is there do hot cross buns go through a similar rigmarole in terms of serving I'd love to know well I mean I guess there's there is a preference for either top or bottom of the <laughs> happy pride everyone um, of the hot cross bun like some people prefer the sort of shiny the shiny top and other people I guess the bottom's more bready but we're to- are we, you cutting are we it, slicing it yeah, well I, I always slice them through the middle like you don't cut down the middle of the hot Imagine the, the seeing cross. someone do that. <laughs> that. That's talking about a psychopath test. <laughs> so, so, so we're cutting, we're cutting through, through the, middle. the middle. Yep, like like a sandwich. Mm. Um, and are we doing a red roll? Uh, well, toast. I I put mine in the oven, so they're sort of grilled. Only because my toast is too like it can't actually handle half a hot cross bun in yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and then just butter, right? Isn't that normal? Well, I, uh, but if these th- if these new flavors are so kind of complex and like exciting yeah, they're very master chef maybe there is not maybe we're just grabbing the, these out of the bag and shoving them maybe. down our gullet and then there's like the mini hot cross bun versus normal maxi hot cross bun um argument as well it's funny and it, and then that like i know people who absolutely preference the worst oh. you know supermarket generic hot cross bun you can get and then there's i guess it's like croissants some people like to line up for a fancy croissant other people are happy to just go get one from the local chain bakery like yeah we have a listener who does cut through the cross <gasps> so that everyone gets a top and bottom. 
that's oh, very that magnificent. Is, okay, that's now I'm not angry I think anymore. Cross would approve. But also, then you don't get cross. Maybe they're a genius. Triple <laughs> R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. 